to When We Were Young, the podcast that looks bad and smells bad, and thus is luckily only available as an auditory experience. <laughs> I'm Chris Fly, the podcast host most likely to abruptly invite you back to his place five seconds after meeting you at a party, with the secret intention to teleport your stockings. <laughs> I want my stocking back, Chris. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's a little goopy. <laughs> I'm Becky Fly, the podcast host most likely to be the world's first insect politician. <laughs> I'll vote for you. Thank you. I think we already have an insect politician, but uh, (laughs) we may talk about that a little bit later. (laughs) And I'm Seth Fly, the host most likely to brundle myself. In our final two episodes of the year, we are kissing off 2020 in the most stomach-churning fashion imaginable, taking a deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool of 80s (laughs) sci-fi horror remakes of classic 50s B-movies. Part one performed an autopsy on John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982, which is all about the paranoia of not being able to trust that the people around you are who they claim to be. And in this episode, we're dissecting The Fly, David Cronenberg's 1986 remake of the campy classic from 1958, which trades more on the fear of the evil thing that you may be turning into yourself. Both these films really go toe-to-toe in gore, (laughs) with special effects that make body horror the real star of the show. Both are also very psychologically horrifying as well, getting at terrifying existential questions we might prefer not to think about. And these two films between them pretty much sum up my plans for New Year's Eve this year. (laughs) (laughs) Just remember that we only want to horrify and nauseate you out of love so that you can forget all about the things that are horrifying and nauseating you in real life. So as we are coming up on the new year, a time when we look to change ourselves, improve ourselves, metamorphosize ourselves through diet or exercise or fusion with insect DNA, whatever your new year's resolution may be, I have a new opening question for you, which is what has been your greatest transformation? My greatest transformation literally happened within like a year I was overweight growing up. I would think between the ages of like fourth grade through sixth grade, I was pretty overweight for like a 12 year old. I had long brown hair down to my waist, glasses, bangs, and was very, very shy. I went to weight loss camp for nine weeks, lost 26 pounds, and I kind of like went through puberty at that time. So like my whole body changed. So even when I like gained weight back, it never looked like as bad, I guess, because then it was like more like butt and hips and boobs and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And I got contacts and I cut my hair to my shoulders. I dyed it blonde. And then I also developed like a personality. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. I was very shy because I was made fun of a lot, but I was just very, very shy. And then when I went to camp, I learned to like make fun of myself. I wasn't afraid to like make jokes about myself and... I just got a lot more extroverted. I feel like you could not identify me by like a year later, (laughs) like the same person I was. Even though I had lost the weight, I hadn't like cut my hair and got contacts yet for my eighth grade picture at the beginning of the year. And that all of that happened by the end of the year that when we got the eighth grade yearbook, people were like, how was this you? (laughs) Like, you look completely different. I think that was probably my greatest transformation. 
other than giving birth and now everything hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's the more recent one. Nice. What about you, Seth? Are you still in your cocoon? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I do feel like I'm in a cocoon phase, but in other ways, I feel like I've always just been myself, you know, and just becoming myself. This is one of those questions where it'd be much easier, I think, for anyone else to answer about me, like, especially anyone who's known me for a long time, because I always live inside this head and <laughs> occupy my own body. So I, I spend every second here with myself. <laughs> So it's always harder for me to identify, you know, periods of time where there's been more apparent change to me versus not so much change. I would probably have to say that, like, externally speaking, I would have seemed like a very different person before and after my freshman year of college because I was pretty much de facto, like, in the closet for the first 18 years of my life growing up in New Orleans. There was no kind of gay-straight alliance club at my high school to speak of. I had given a speech at a student body assembly that was about being gay bashed and people interpreted that as me coming out, but it wasn't about that at all. So that kind of put me off from really ever actually coming out to people. I harbored a lot of my depression and self-loathing just in the form of additional weight throughout high school and ironically enough like my freshman 15 was actually it took the form of losing 15 pounds rather than gaining them you did it wrong <laughs> i totally did it wrong like i do most things <laughs> and like i i bleached and dyed my hair as a college freshman for the first time in my life i like drank until getting drunk for the first time in my life even though i'd grown up in new orleans which is like the the unofficial world hometown of getting drunk and also my freshman year of college i remember it was when i got contacts for a brief shining moment in time so probably externally that would have been the greatest moment of change for me and then like internally i would probably have to say like my senior year of high school was the actual biggest internal turning point because that was when I really accepted like internally from my own self that I was gay and I wouldn't necessarily say that I developed self-confidence or self-esteem I mean I also wouldn't necessarily say that I've developed that now but I found a way to not actively hate myself as much as I had hated myself before and I got some counseling like during my senior year of high school that helped me put into context the fact that a lot of the people in my high school class were assholes to me for no reason but even saying that like I don't necessarily feel like those are particularly gigantic transformations. I mean, I've, I've always been a very internal person. I've always been very sensitive and very emotional. And I, I think I am better at capturing my own internal emotional states than I am at, like mapping out some like larger scale narrative of how I've changed over time. I feel like it's a very unsatisfactory answer to a great question, but that's kind of all I can think of. No, it was not unsatisfactory at all. Okay. It, it sort of made me want to give you a hug if it was not life-threatening to do so. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh. <laughs>
But yeah, I connected to a lot of what you guys said in both of your answers. Like Seth, I think mine is definitely around my freshman year going to college. I was also a very shy high schooler and someone who was just sort of not very comfortable in my own skin. And it took like about that year, that freshman year. And, you know, there was a, there was a lot of things that went into this. It also had a physical side that reminds me of Becky's story, <laughs> which was uh, going blonde. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Seth had that too, I guess. Yeah. Bleach is a wonder of a instigator for change, I guess. <laughs> Bleach is one hell of a drug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> I almost put it that way. And then I, I didn't want anyone, you know, taking it to cure coronavirus or anything. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've always associated that change in myself of going blonde to being bolder and like, you know, as kind of a way to represent to the outside world. Like, I don't care as much what people think. Like, I don't know necessarily if blondes have more fun, but they do give less fucks at least. Uh, <laughs> the way that I do it. So, I mean, that period is obviously a period of transformation for a lot of people because you're leaving home and, you know, kind of allowed to figure out exactly what you want to do and where you want to be in life. But it did enough as a like physical transformation that eventually, like when I bleached my hair again around my high school reunion, there were people that like didn't recognize me and like introduced themselves to me and thought I was like a guest of someone instead because it was enough of a transformation. And I, I, I thought that that was uh, a nice success, actually, of, of having transformed. Absolutely. It's like a real Romeo and Michelle's moment. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going <laughs> Don't for. Don't get him started. <laughs> oh, are we not going to do that episode again right now? <laughs> I'm ready. So before we continue, uh, I'll just take a second to read a new review that we have. We do like to celebrate our reviews, especially when they are five stars, as they almost always are. The title of this review is Just Delightful. Hmm. It says, Hi gang, just started listening to this gem. I was in my 20s and 30s when all these movies, TV shows, and music came out, but I love revisiting them through your eyes. I love the way you play off each other. I can't believe the amount of research you all do. I love your humor. You are the best. If I had the time, I would binge listen to all three of you for hours. Keep making these. Absolutely love them. Sincerely, Janetta. Aw, thank you. And it's all it's all Chris about the research. <laughs> You're complimenting Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Janetta. And we will gladly glom onto and steal valor <laughs> from our research general, Chris. That's right. I'm, I'm getting well compensated, right? My checks are in the mail. <laughs> yeah, they're on the way, buddy. Okay. They're on the way. You know, there were the slowdowns in the postal service, mm-hmm. but it's on its way. And thank you so much, Janetta. Yeah, we should also shout out our Patreon subscribers again. Sometimes we do that at the end, but we just got a new one today. So I just want to say thank you, thank you because we have some monthly ones. So that's it's very nice that people, they want us to continue. <laughs> they have some faith in that we're going to continue <laughs> monthly by pledging monthly. We are going to continue monthly. We are. So thank you very much. Absolutely. And we're at patreon.com slash when we were young in case you want to help us make more episodes of this marvelous show. Is that true? Is that what we are? I think so. <laughs> it could be W. I don't know. Will everyone in the theater hold on firmly to his seat, please? Vincent Price. What unearthly horror did that girl gaze upon? What manner of incredible thing walked beneath that hood? 
It would be unfair at this time to show you any more of what went on in that laboratory where a man actually dared to play God. So fantastic words can't begin to describe it. You must see it with your own eyes to believe it. When the fly comes your way. The inspiration for The Thing, our subject of the last episode, is a pretty straightforward monster movie. It's well-regarded. The original Fly movie that this movie is based on is definitely leaning much more into what we think of as a B-movie, which we also talked about in the last episode. So I just wanted to read some titles of 50s B-movies that I found. Awesome. Go ahead and just, you know, shout out if you've seen any of these, heard of any of them, believe that they exist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I Married a Monster from Outer Space. Okay, Chris, but start the B-movie titles. <laughs> this is my biography. <laughs> Catwoman of the Moon. <laughs> the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. <laughs> the Beast with a Million Eyes. <laughs> Attack of the Crab Monsters. <laughs> I mean, I mean, these titles are saying, you know, they're, they're, it's like snakes on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're really putting that out on Front Street and not yeah. beating around the bush at all. Also, I feel like all of these are Mystery Science Theater 3000 titles. <laughs> For sure. Uh, the Twonky. <laughs> I don't know what that is. That's some new gay slang I haven't heard yet. <laughs> Should be. Fire Maidens from Outer Space. Ooh. <laughs> Invasion of the Saucer Men. The Viking Woman <laughs> and the Sea Serpent. Attack of the Puppet People. Terror <laughs> from the year 5000. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful Women and the Hydrogen Man. <laughs> Beautiful women seem more threatening in that scenario. (laughs) I was a teenage Frankenstein. (laughs) Okay, that one I've definitely heard of. The brain that wouldn't die. The hideous sun demon. The 30-foot bride of Candy Rock. Wow. (laughs) And the weirdest one, which was actually from the 60s, the rest were all from the 50s, is the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed-up zombies! Exclamation point, exclamation (laughs) point, question mark. Wait, what? That's a title? What? That is the title of a movie. I think that they, by that point, were realizing that they were kind of parodying themselves. Because, uh, yeah. 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 That was the scary movie of its day. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. It, w- it was The Silence of the Lambs of 1964. <laughs> and then the most famous of the B-movies that we're not discussing is The Blob from 1958. Now, that I have seen many incarnations of The Blob. Definitely have seen at least one. I think there were like a couple black and white versions of that movie. And I know that I've seen like a later one of the remakes that was in color. Yeah, it was remade in 1988. So technically we could have done a trilogy here, but it's uh, much less esteemed than these other two movies. So (laughs) we spared you. That sounds like a movie that was definitely on In My House, watched by my mom, The Blob. I actually watched the original one, which is from 1958, and it's pretty fun. It's like, even then, it knew it was campy. Yeah. And it's in Technicolor, so it's actually, like, very beautiful to look at. And the blob looks delicious, actually. It does. It looks pretty tasty. Really? (laughs) It's purple. Looking like a snack. (laughs) We we might actually get to this later in the episode, but was there... It seems like pop culture is kind of like cyclical 30 years. So was there like a whole 50s thing in the 80s? I mean, because of like, you know, Back to the Future. And it seems like they were drawing inspiration from a lot of these 50s B-movies and rebooting them in the 80s. Yeah, it probably is because of the age of the filmmakers who had some nostalgia for maybe watching them as kids. Like, it seems like they probably would have been on TV. 
Well, and even more than that, I think it reflects the ages of development execs and studio executives who make all the actual decisions of what to green light, you know? All right. If you're going to add some cynicism in there, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, it's fine. It's true. I mean, there definitely is some cash grabbing going on uh, surrounding this. Mm Mm-hmm. The 1958 The Fly starred Vincent Price, well-known for his role in horror movies, many of them considered B-movies. It is based on a short story by George Langellan, and it follows it very faithfully. The story starts with a woman murdering her husband by smashing his head in a factory press, mm-hmm. and then flashes back to show that he was a scientist experimenting with teleportation, who, of course, ends up teleporting himself with a hitchhiking fly and becoming part fly himself. Meanwhile, his head has appeared on a fly's body, which in the end of the movie gets caught in a spider's web in a very weird but very memorable scene, which is really fun to watch. Mm. Wait in the house. It's a good boy for me. I think that I had somehow seen the the scene where he's got a fly head and thought that was in this version of the movie of Jeff Goldblum because I was waiting for mm-hmm. it, for it to be like a ridiculous fly head. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing versions of that scene in, I'm pretty sure it was in The Simpsons at least. Oh, I'm sure. But I think it was also in like Animaniacs, you know, because again, it's like a lot of those cartoon series that we grew up with would reference like 50s B-movies and especially 50s like B-movie sci-fi and horror movies just kind of for in-jokes and references. So I definitely remember like seeing some version of that scene. Totally. And I think my mom would even like reference that scene like that. It's so campy. And yet it is kind of scary because I mean, it looks ridiculous, but there's this little fly with a man's head on it. And there's this gigantic (laughs) spider coming toward him. Like that is that is quite terrifying. Like, (laughs) but yeah, that's a very iconic scene that I cherish. And I, 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 I watch this movie. It it's worth watching just for that scene. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, I watched the scene on YouTube, so am I missing anything? No, you probably got it, but... (laughs) Okay. Okay. I mean, the giant fly head is fun, too. The Fly remake was begun in the early 1980s by producer Stuart Kornfeld, who went on to produce films that are not at all like The Fly, uh, including Dodgeball (laughs) and Zoolander. Wow. He is also said to be a partial basis for Tom Cruise's character in Tropic Thunder. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) that guy. Fun guy, I'm sure. He became a pretty legendary comedy producer, um, and he actually just passed away. But yeah, he has a great track record in comedy, and it totally surprised me that he produced this. Well, another surprise, probably, um, unless you already researched this, is that to get this made, they teamed up with Mel Brooks. Nope, I looked it up. Ha <laughs> ha. I just read the opening titles. Yeah. <laughs> he kept his name out of the press to avoid people thinking that this was going to be a comedy like Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles, but he was very involved in the making of this. Probably for the best. 
Well, and he also helped produce David Lynch's Elephant Man and was a very like unlikely contributor to a lot of serious and respected filmmakers. Good on you, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> David Cronenberg was the first choice to direct, but he was delayed because he was directing another sci-fi film based on an old short story, Total Recall. He didn't actually direct that. It didn't happen. <laughs> but he was supposed to. <laughs> That's really interesting, actually. Huh. Yeah, that would have been a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> Probably much grosser. I seem to be stricken by a disease with a purpose, wouldn't you say? Uh, uh, Maybe not such a bad disease after all. I can't stay. No, no, no. Why not? Why can't you? I can't take it. It's too much. That's what it takes. The disease has just revealed its purpose. We don't have to worry about contagion anymore. I know what the disease wants. What does the disease want? It wants to turn me into something else. That's not too terrible, is it? Most people would give anything to be turned into something else. Turned into what? What do you think, a fly? Am I becoming a 185-pound fly? No, I'm becoming something that never existed before. I'm becoming Brundlefly. Don't you think that's worth a Nobel Prize or two? Besides the idea of a scientist whose teleportation goes awry and fuses him with a fly, the story of the Fly remake does not have a lot in common with the original story or the first Fly film. The movie was released August 15th, 1986 by 20th Century Fox, directed by Cronenberg between Dead Zone and Dead Ringers. Lots of dead. <laughs> it was written by Cronenberg and Stuart Pogue, who also wrote Psycho 3 and Dragonheart. The makeup effects were by Chris Wallace, who also did Gremlins, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Arachnophobia. Hmm. And the makeup effects won an Oscar, the only Oscar ever won for a Cronenberg film. Wow. For the movie, Brian Ferry recorded a song called Help Me, <laughs> <laughs> which then didn't really make it into the movie. They were going to play it over the closing credits and then thought it was like the wrong tone. So it's like kind of, you can hear it in the background in a bar scene, but... <laughs> It's the wrong tone for sure, and I've never even heard it. Yeah, I was going to say, I love Roxy music, but the whole vibe of Brian Ferry does not really go well with Cronenbergian body horror. That's pretty, I mean, you would never know that the song, you know, has anything to do with the fly if you didn't hear it in context, but it's, I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> the movie cost somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 million. It grossed 40.5 million. Oh, it was wow. number one at the box office at the same time. Uh, Aliens, Top Gun, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Stand By Me, and Howard the Duck were all in theaters. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you had to go with that last one. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wanted to give a full spectrum of what was available to movie-going audiences at this time. The buzz around the fly was quite positive. <laughs> oh, Chris. Shame. Shame on you. Thank you very much. How dare you. The Boston Globe's Michael Blowen said, The Fly is that rare species of movie, a remake that far surpasses the original and, quite frankly, all expectations. The New York Times' Karen James uh, had a slightly more negative opinion. She said, In David Cronenberg's new version, Jeff Goldblum is a graphic fly for the fact-crazed 80s. Transformed into a creature so repulsive, he makes the monster and aliens look like grandma in a Norman Rockwell painting. This all-out flaunted goriness becomes distracting and it destroys the fly, which is too bad because Mr. Goldblum's flyman has heart and humor and Mr. Cronenberg's vision is ambitious. <laughs> Did you say flyman? Flyman, yes. 
That, that was Karen. That was not an embellishment by me. Mr. Flyman. Such a Karen thing to say, really. <laughs> hey, uh, was Rita Kempley on vacation during all this time? What the hell? <laughs> I guess so. Maybe she's not a body horror fan. I don't know. We still love her. So this movie won an Oscar. It was well-reviewed. It made a pretty good amount of money. And I thought that was interesting just based on the fact that The Thing had done so poorly just four years earlier. Like, if you had asked me before we did this episode, I probably would have said that that one was the hit and this one wasn't. Was Jeff Goldblum a a known actor before this or was this his breakout role? He was kind of known because he was working in like the 70s, but I don't think he was a star like to draw people to a movie. Yeah, okay. I don't think he, I absolutely don't think he was like a big star at this time. Okay. And I think especially in retrospect, this was kind of his big breakout role in, as like a leading actor. So uh, what's your history with The Fly? Was this your first time seeing it or had you seen it before? I have never seen this before. <laughs> I have no history with this. All right. <laughs> I had no, I, I had no idea what to expect. I, I myself was flyless up until now. <laughs> and again, like much like with The Thing, I'm a big David Cronenberg fan. I have seen and loved many of his movies, especially The Brood, Videodrome, Crash. Not that Crash. Not that Crash, the other one. There are a lot of his movies I've caught up on, especially in more recent years. Much like with John Carpenter, I kind of go through these phases with auteur filmmakers where I get as much, as many of their movies as I possibly can. And very similar to John Carpenter, the thing I've always loved about David Cronenberg is how much he smashes genre conventions together. But also, I've always really loved the way that he uses like science science fiction and horror and like gruesome gory imagery to examine the like the darkest and deepest and most raw feelings and experiences of being human really almost all of his movies that i've seen deal with aspects of like lust and love and hatred and parenthood and death but having said that i had literally never seen the fly one time until i sat down to watch it in advance of this and i do think the fly in particular was one of those movies where i had caught like a glimpse of one of the more gory images when i was really young so i think this was one of the movies that i kind of intentionally avoided because i was like oh i think that looks a little bit too scary for me i would probably have nightmares if i watched it interesting yeah. And for the record, I've seen, I think I've seen A History of Violence and Eastern Promises. And that's the only other Cronenberg movies I've seen. You're missing. Wait, that's not true. I've seen Existence with Chris. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Existence is definitely more like his earlier film- filmography, as is The Fly. Yeah. It- And I've seen History of Violence and Eastern Promises and love both those movies, but totally blanked out on them for thinking about this because it's like they're so different from all his other movies that I've seen. What about you, Chris? Yeah, I, like you, am a growing Cronenberg fan. I I sort of catch up with him in pieces. I I did start like like Becky, well, with Existence um, (laughs) because I had to write a paper. We're laughing because it's terrible. (laughs) No, it's like once you embrace the campiness, it's kind of good it's it's a weird movie and then like kind of got into his prestige films that were nominated for awards and then kind of backtracked into his earlier work which is much more centered around body horror and weirdness 
And so I had seen the fly, but like with the thing, I remembered that it was gross. And that was kind of it. I had a better sense that I thought that this was a good movie, but I really couldn't remember very many specifics after a naked Jeff Goldblum in a pod. (laughs) And recently I watched The Brood, which is very gross and very disturbing. I love that movie so much. Yeah, that's a good that's a good horror movie. Videodrome is a really great weird movie. They're all weird. Yeah, I don't know. I know the names of these movies and I have like I couldn't even describe to you anything about them. I've just heard these yeah. Neither could I, and I have seen them. <laughs> Yeah, movies like Videodrome are really tough to explain, especially tough to explain because there's a tremendous James Woods performance in it, and none of those words should go together in a sentence, and yet here they are. So, yeah, I'm a pretty big David Cronenberg fan, and so I thought going into this movie I would like it, but I really didn't remember any specifics again other than gross. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So what did you guys think of it, uh, seeing it for the first time? Two minutes into this movie, and I was already completely dazzled. I always really enjoy Jeff Goldblum's performances. He has this almost supernatural ability to ride the lightning between being nerdy and sexy and maybe a little bit creepy, like all (laughs) at the same time, completely effortlessly. Mm-hmm. And that's especially come to kind of define his persona as a comic actor. But this movie absolutely made it so clear why he's become so successful for that. This is really kind of a two-person movie between him and Gina Davis. And I think both of them are so perfectly, perfectly cast. It just it, The relationship is so sad and so damned from the start. And yet they're both kind of completely unable to extricate themselves from it. I felt like this was such a particularly great pairing of two body horror movies because it really felt like the thing was about sabotage and doom and apocalypse coming from a totally external invader like in the form of this alien literally from another planet but the fly is about sabotage and doom but it's also a movie that has like a much more internal enemy The enemy of it is ourselves, it's our lust and our greed and ambition and like that kind of like reckless pursuit of all of that leading us to our own destruction and personal devastation. Struggles like that are usually completely internal, but in The Fly, like this happens externally to Jeff Goldblum's body when his character, Seth Brundle, becomes genetically and physically combined with this fly. Being that this was the first time I saw this movie the whole way through, I was really curious when that transformation would happen. So one of my biggest feelings coming out of it and like my first note for this was just my excitement at how well written it was. And in particular, how long it took to set the moment up. And and it was great to me because that moment wasn't at the top of the movie. It took the whole first act and then some to take the time to set these characters up and to get us to know what they care about. So when the kind of physical externalized horror really sets in, it's got really deep emotional stakes to it. And it's not just like legitimately horrifying, but it's really genuinely sad. 
Seth, I want to talk. <laughs> oh, I'm done now. That's like, that's it for the rest of the episode. That was a monologue. <laughs> I know. This movie's great. <laughs> that's it. I was expecting this movie to be the blob. Like, I thought it was going to be the room. You know, it's called The Fly. Like, I I was going into it thinking it was going to be really cheesy. You know, like, what you think of when you think of a B-movie, like, amateurishly made. No, not a a B, a fly. (laughs) Oh, man. We both went there. Mm. We both deserve a good swatting for that one. (laughs) Goodbye. Get the spray. I think it's because I thought that that shot from the 50s movie was in the 80s movie of him with the fly head, like the mm-hmm. cheesy fly head. I, that's what I was expecting. Um, but I was very surprised. Um, I thought this was great. Um, I, I, I'm i going to put it into my regular rotation for my Halloween movies. <laughs> I thought it was disgusting in a good way, like in an effective way. I was just kind of like, couldn't believe I hadn't seen this movie until now. It had never had a reputation for being a good movie. I thought it was always seen as silly or, you know, cheesy or something. But I I actually thought it was really good. (laughs) Definitely not for everyone. It's funny, like my husband who did like the thing, he just was like, oh, you're watching The Fly next? Like, I heard that movie's gross. I don't want to watch gross stuff. And then I was halfway (laughs) through and I was like, it's not that gross. I think you'd like it. And then like a few more minutes, I was like, it's gross. It's really gross. (laughs) Like, it's not for you. You shouldn't watch it. (laughs) Like, like it's legit disgusting um, with his makeup and and his vomit. (laughs) A lot of vomit. (laughs) Um, But it was so entertaining. Like, I, I really liked it. I'm shocked. So you thought it was pretty fly then? I thought nothing of the sort. I refuse to take part in these puns. That won't fly with Becky. God, you're killing me, guys. Chris, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I also really appreciated this film. I also, like Seth, was really impressed by our sort of accidental pairing of these films. I mean, seriously, we we did it because they were both remakes of fifties films in the eighties, so it made sense to pair them. But you know, at first glance, there wasn't a huge reason to pair them, other than that they were both just made by really legendary filmmakers and were remakes. But they also really complement each other. Um, thematically. Uh, I, I also thought it was interesting that the thing was about how other people can be your only lifeline, but also your biggest threat. And in this film, you're your biggest threat. And, mm-hmm. and Jeff Goldblum is losing his lifeline, which was it, this this woman that he's just fallen in love with. And it becomes this kind of tragic romance, but also in a very like weird sci-fi story. So, you know, it's not a, certainly not a melodramatic story. Yeah, and in many ways, it's it's the opposite of the thing. It's very focused on character, these two characters. It has a female in it, <laughs> unlike the thing, <laughs> who has a very important role. Goldblum is very charismatic, whereas I would say the cast of the thing is more... I mean, they're good, but they're definitely not as like much of a draw as Goldblum is here. And there's a lot of dialogue in this movie that really pops. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was kind of surprised about in the thing is there wasn't as many like lines that stood out to me, because it's a pretty 
you know, quiet and straightforward movie. And this one has all kinds of crazy dialogue. <laughs> the plasma pool, Chris. The plasma pool. <laughs> yes. Some of which we've already referenced in the opening that the insect politician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you ever heard of insect politics? Neither have I. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. No compassion. No compromise. We can't trust the insect. I'd like to become the first insect politician. You see, I'd like to, uh, but... Oh, I'm afraid, um... I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm saying... I'm saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over and the insect is awake. I think my very first note from watching this is, uh, this is Ian Malcolm. <laughs> really? Because my note was, this is Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> but I mean, he's basically playing the same character as he is in Jurassic Park, where he is a socially awkward, but very... Confident. Very forthright about his ideas. Yeah, a scientist. And what struck me here is just that, like, I can't imagine anyone else playing this role. Truly. Like, unlike The Thing, where, you know, we like Kurt Russell, but you could see a lot of other people in that role, and it would be the same movie. Well, and he's his character is an everyman. Yeah. And this is just like, I can't imagine anyone else delivering this dialogue. Like, Are we sure it was even in the screenplay? Was it just Jeff Goldblum <laughs> just, like, ad-libbing the whole time? Because I, I would believe that. Oh, they were just making a drama and he wandered on set in that costume and started babbling. (laughs) Chris, I I completely agree with you. Like, Jeff Goldblum is a singular talent and this movie is probably the best showcase of that that I've seen. One thing I love so much about David Cronenberg is almost any movie of his I've seen could be described as a drama or a comedy or a horror movie all at once. And when he's at his best, he just juggles all those things effortlessly. And like, I think this movie benefits so much from the fact that Jeff Goldblum, just as an actor, carries all of the tones of this movie and all of the kind of internalized drama and the externalized character actor performance side of that. He just carries it all at once um, and does such an amazing job. Yeah, I think this script could like be very bad. Like if you did not, if you filmed it in a different way, like this exact script would be terrible there are lines that like i'm becoming brundle fly like that could be so insane really bad so insane not delivered well (laughs) oh yeah well and and, like the whole the plasma pool thing is like there's it's this whole monologue where he's it's it's coming after his point where he's begun his transformation um, and it's at the point where ronnie um gina davis's character is kind of realizing that there's something wrong with him and Seth Brundle's going on this rant about how Ronnie's a fucking drag, how she's afraid to dive into the plasma pool. And he starts going into like talking about sex and penetration. It, it could so easily be a very silly, very, very silly monologue. 
but it's about a character who just wants to dive so deeply into his love for his creation and the thing that he's pursuing that he will destroy his body to do it, and he succeeds in his mission. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. No, not you. You're too chicken shit to be a member of the Dynamic Duo Club. Okay, then great. I'll find somebody else. Somebody who can keep up with me. Seth, you have to listen to me. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? I bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the flesh. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, gray fear of the flesh. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. Yeah, that scene, I didn't even think about this at the time, but I'm thinking of it now, is that it really feels like a drug addict losing himself to that instead of, you know, the person that he loves. And that was that was one of my biggest like notes was that he plays the physicality of that transformation a lot like a severe drug addiction early on. And it works so well because you see like those initial positive side effects are replaced with something darker. And it kind of felt like a cousin to Requiem for a Dream a little bit. It's interesting that you guys have all these interpretations because while I was watching it, I was like, oh, it's like cancer or the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's what this is. I think that totally fits too. Yeah, like this is what it is to see somebody you love deteriorate because of a disease. And I I guess you could say like, oh, it's his, you could link link it to addiction because it's tied to his like ambition and his obsession with his invention. But for me, it felt more like random and not like a choice. Like he didn't put the fly in there with him. And then it just, you know, oops. And then you're just unlucky. And this is what happens when you're like dealing with a disease that you're not going to win. That's what I got out of it. It's just interesting. I think that it's made to to bring your own interpretation to it that somebody could see like a drug ad- addiction and one person could see like cancer or, or like a disease. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because there are so many horror movies that feel like a clear metaphor for something where you could interpret them different ways, but mostly there's like one kind of narrative and this, like I really think it shares with the thing that, that it, it just leaves it so open that you can kind of read into whatever you're feeling. Like for me, what came up is aging. Mm. And so it's sort of similar to cancer, but just the sense that like, you know, your body starts doing these things that you don't associate with yourself. Like, Oh, now this hurts. Like, Oh, this is like, what's this weird rash that appeared like appeared. I don't recognize this. Like, and, and in the movie, it's like the, the hairs that sprout mm-hmm. <laughs> his back that are so gross yeah, so. <laughs> and coarse, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that your body can just do these things to you that you didn't agree to. And you don't, like but like you're stuck with it and so yeah i mean that could be cancer or aging or anything that you experience but definitely very viscerally conveys that experience oh god Uh, how how can you keep going you can't have any fluid left in your body 
I've been doing this for hours. Uh, I'm ready to quit, guys. Yeah, I love that. And actually, the the hairs on the back was another big note I had. That also ties in to what we were talking about in the themes of The Thing, which is invasion. One of the great and really tense dramatic moments in this is when Gina Davis's character, Ronnie, confronts Seth. And she reveals that she actually clipped those hairs off Jeff Goldblum's back and sends them to a lab for testing. You know, and it plays out in such a clever way because you don't really like see her like collecting them or sneaking away, but she invades his privacy and literally went behind his back to do this. And she's <laughs> totally justified in doing it too. But it was a very thoughtful and emotional, dramatic way to ground that like very sci fi moment of like, ooh, spooky, there's something inhuman on him because it kind of made it into her doing something to kind of violate his trust. I think this is the most literal use of the word behind his back <laughs> that's ever been made. <laughs> I want to say that when we first see Jeff Goldblum in this movie, I was shocked at how odd looking he looked. Like he's a, really? the, the 80s were not kind to a lot of people. Not Gina Davis. She's gorgeous beyond belief. She was gorgeous. Gorgeous. Absolutely. Also, they were married the year after this was made. Wait, what? I have no idea. Yeah, isn't that amazing? What a what a meet cute. I mean, who couldn't be in this movie and fall head over heels? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, but it's like a meet cute, like M-E-A-T, Becky. <laughs> <laughs> so at first I was like, oh, Jeff Goldblum, it's not looking great with the hair and everything. But, you know, oh. as the movie progresses, it becomes more physical. I like how you started this movie thinking Jeff Goldblum doesn't look great. <laughs> <laughs> right. I did. Let's see what my notes actually say. I wrote first of all, my notes autocorrected Jeff Goldblum to Jeff Goldlump. <laughs> so, <laughs> Works for this movie. Uh, Mr. So my notes are Jeff Goldlump is really weird looking in this movie. <laughs> and then I wrote, except for his body, hot damn Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was fucking hot. Oh my god, his body yeah, is body something, rocking. something else. I'm pretty sure he is not um well, first of all, I didn't know turning a new fly also turns you into an Olympic gold medal winning gymnast. Everyone knows that. <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty sure he's not doing the gymnast work in this movie, but he is just like hanging around without a shirt on. And goddamn, I think that was to make up. I think that was to make up for the fact that they just make him so hideous by the end. <laughs> <laughs> Worth it. They're like, look, you're going to you're going to have a hot body for half of it. And then we're going to cover you with goo. <laughs> and you're going to vomit a lot. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum is not someone I would like immediately think of as like a sexy actor. But there are these weird moments in this movie, like him in the pod and like in Jurassic Park when he has like, yeah. the shirt open. It's this kind of like cheesy, yeah. sexy, but, but like but genuine. there is something about him. Yeah, something about him being this like doomsday nerd <laughs> that is oddly appealing. 
I didn't know this movie would have abortion talk in it. Yeah, I didn't know that either. <laughs> I had no idea. Wasn't prepared for that. Yeah, I didn't know that she would get pregnant. And it, Again, that kind of like hits on that metaphor of invasion very well too. Yeah, for sure. Right. It's, I mean, it definitely like it brings up the idea of like, what if you are impregnated by something that you did not intend, like a, like a rape or something like that? And is it okay to have an abortion at that point? And, you know, they have this debate where she wants to get rid of it. She doesn't feel comfortable. She feels like it's invading her. And he, at that point, believes, you know, that he should have a say in this and that, that, that she should go through with it because he wants it. And yeah, it's a really interesting, dicey thing to find in a movie that could be just like a campy, like horror movie. Yeah. And I, I really appreciated that Gina Davis's character, Ronnie, like is never a doormat at all. Mm-mm. And she's never like a battered wife, even though her boss at the magazine she works at is her ex-partner and he's the shithead seemingly. Yeah, he's a shithead. He's awful. But I, I really just love how much agency she has in this. And I mean, ultimately her trajectory is just as doomed as Seth Brundle's, you know, and she pays a big price for falling in love with him and trying to care for him unconditionally. But again, it was like that was on her own terms. And I really appreciated that. And of course, it's like Ultimately, at the end of this story, she's the last one standing. I thought Gina Davis did such a good job. Like, I thought she was fantastic in this in this she's part fantastic. that I totally believed her at every moment. And it's so ridiculous, but I totally believed oh, yeah. her. This is a part that could have been literally like the girlfriend, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I felt like they elevated it and she elevated it. Like, I was really surprised how much better this movie was than it even needed to be. <laughs> yeah. You could definitely see the version of this movie where she's just, like, staying with him too long, mm-hmm. you know? But, like, she's smart in this movie. Like, she gets out at the appropriate time. She knows something's wrong. And she's still trying to help him because she still cares about him. But she's not being dumb about it where she's just, like oh, well, you know, you're buzzing around, <laughs> turning into a fly, but whatever. Like, Which, I, I mean, I can definitely see that happening in, in just a lesser version of this film. And even straight through to the end, in that last moment, like, she doesn't have this, like, crazy abrupt turn and, you know, blow his fucking head off with a shotgun at the moment where he's totally gone all in and has become something that is completely monstrous and beyond all humanity. Like, it's ultimately, like, the flying creature itself that, like, in that last moment, like, directs her to be like, no, like, you've gotta kill me like that is the only option left i just thought that even up through that ending moment it did such a good job of keeping them on track to emotionally and dramatically where their characters were even as crazy as the plot of it went i mean the movie is and their relationship is very tragic and doomed throughout but i I just thought it was beautifully ended in that way in in the fact that like no one makes some abrupt change that you're not expecting them to make it just kind of carries through to the only possible conclusion that it could reach at that point what did you guys think of the beginning? Because this movie opens very abruptly. I don't know if you noticed that. But <laughs> it does. It ends abruptly too. It does. Yeah. It, it's just like I almost thought that like somehow I had skipped like a chapter on the menu or something because there's opening credits and then it's just like Jeff Goldblum says, what am I working on in response to something Gina Davis must have asked? It's just like it doesn't show her like coming yeah. up to him. Like there's no preamble. It starts for in Medea Res. It's just like the middle... <laughs> yeah, middle of their conversation. Yeah, 
I I thought that it was an indication that I was going to be right. It was not going to be a great movie, but I quickly forgot about that. Like as because I got invested when he brought her back to his place and was just a very interesting character. Like right away. Wait a minute. Is that a hologram? Where's my stocking? That's it, the real one. Go ahead, pick it up. I don't think I get it. What happened? You get it all right, you just can't handle it. Um, your stocking has just been teleported from one pod to another, uh, disintegrated there and reintegrated there. Sort of. It'll change the world as we know it, right? In that first scene, and again, it was like whatever images or moments I'd seen from this, I'd never seen that introductory scene of the movie. I was also like really on edge for creepiness in the the actually bad context, like in terms of like him, you know, problematically trying to take advantage of someone or something. Like I, I really had no idea what to expect, but I did find it a very abrupt and quick opening. But it does such a good and economical job of establishing those characters. And then at the same time, it does not rush into his transformation. Like it doesn't rush into the like big turning story gears and breakthrough moments that really propel the plot forward until kind of a bit later than that. Again, I I thought it was just wonderfully economical. And that's also a thing that I've, I've thought about other Cronenberg movies. Like I think Scanners in particular starts with one of its like most memorable moments, which I won't really go into detail here because I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen Scanners. It's gross. <laughs> it's gross. <laughs> Big spoiler there. David Cronenberg has a very interesting, and again, economical, I think is the word I'd use to describe it, approach to storytelling. And I think here it just really benefits it because there isn't any fat left to trim at the top of it, which really just gives it that much more screen time and script page time to kind of unwind these characters and really lay down the emotional groundwork for their relationship. Yeah, like a lot of of Cronenberg films, I feel like it's taking place in a slightly alternate universe that might just be Canada. <laughs> like it, things feel just like slightly off and yet they're kind of recognizable. That's fair. That's very fair. <laughs> <laughs> Their relationship happens pretty quickly. I'm like mostly on board with it, but I'm also like, mm, it kind of feels like he's going to kill you. Oh yeah. Uh, one of my notes was girl, I see some red flags. <laughs> Uh, yes, indeed. And and they only get redder as they go on. <laughs> 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 this movie coined the phrase, be afraid, be very afraid, which I would have thought was older. <gasps> really? Yes. It's your turn. To do what? I want you to go through. No, I don't want to try that. Why not? It'll make you feel sexy. But I already feel sexy. How about... A nice alcohol rub. Don't do that, it hurts. Sorry, hun. I didn't know you had the skin of a princess. 
real sensitive, huh? Okay, okay. That's it. You're going to like it. I don't want to. I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Who's this? I thought that they were referencing so did I. a movie. Yeah. Oh, wow. No, that's from this movie. Huh. And it was Mel Brooks who came up with it. Had no idea. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and that was that ended up being the tagline of the movie, but it shows you that this movie is in the public consciousness. Yeah. It was a hit, you know, even though I don't think most people know that that's what this is from, but it is. What did you guys think of the editor, I guess, character, who's her ex-boyfriend? Because I kind of wish that that character was not so such a bastard himself, because it kind of... <laughs> <laughs> He didn't need to be such a bastard. Yeah. You know, he was he was such a dick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he'd look great in this. Don't you? Hmm? I mean, for your Time magazine cover, you've got to look good, right? Don't you get it? I am finally onto something that's big. Huge. Yeah? What? His cock? Crude status. Very crude. Too perfect to believe. You're a goddess. Thank you for making my most paranoid fantasies come true. I don't have to report to you, you creep. Ronnie, you've got to talk to me. I don't have to do anything. We're finished, remember? I'll spend the night anywhere I damn well please. Like, it, it's almost like you are like, oh, I don't know. Like, which guy should she be with? It's almost like, eh, go with the fly. Because like, he's he's that bad. <laughs> his name is Stathis Borens. Yeah, I couldn't get past his name. <laughs> That's weird. It's a weird name. I mean, and this movie has weird names. Like the Jeff Goldblum's name is Seth Brundle. Uh, Gina Davis is Veronica Quaif. Quaif just sounds kind of nasty. It's a weird Everyone name. calls her Ronnie, though. Well, Ronnie, short for Veronica. Yeah. Right. And again, I can't tell if that's strange or simply Canadian. Fair enough. I did enjoy the eating synthetic steak scene just because it really reminded <laughs> mm-hmm. me of the thing. Where you have this replacement of something that looks and feels like it should, but mm. there's something about it that is wrong. Yeah, it just seemed like an interesting connection to that film. Yeah, I thought that was also a really interesting tactile moment and a good character moment, you know, because Seth Brundle is the only character who actually gets to experience, you know, teleportation technology and be the one who has the full experience of this scientific leap that he's taking. So I really liked that synthetic steak scene because, you know, it let Ronnie into his world, even though she never gets teleported or transported anywhere. Yeah, and like Becky kind of mentioned earlier, like this movie, like unlike the thing, the grossness like really comes out over time. It, like, you're like it, It's a real progression <laughs> into the disgusting. <laughs> and it gets really gross, but I, I really like the way that they just make Jeff Goldblum look increasingly awful, even when he's still pretty human. Oh, even when his skin started getting bad, I was like, ugh. Yeah, and it doesn't look like creepy makeup effects. It just looks like someone with like really bad skin. It's, it's like, yeah, even that is really well done. Yeah, it was a good escalation. <laughs> oh. That's disgusting. My ear. No. I'm scared. 
Ich hab mich... I hated the part where his like ear comes off and then he's like, and he's like, oh, my teeth are falling out. My cabinet is the natural history museum of me. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh, this is so gross. <laughs> like, I feel like it's effective. Like it's, I wish I had seen it for Halloween. Like it's definitely like an October Halloween movie. It's a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's not a Christmas movie. <laughs> You're opening the advent calendar of you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so what is it about bugs? Because we have um, like the Kafka story, <laughs> um, the metamorphosis, which is about a man turning into a bug. This, I mean, pretty obviously seems at least somewhat influenced by that. So I don't know. I mean, why, why is turning into bugs a thing? Well, they're not cute. <laughs> like they 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 don't have like a face that we can easily what's the word anthropomorphize. Thank you. They don't have like an easy face that we can be like, "Oh, and identify with." Mm-hmm. We look down on them. We consider them like vermin and like we can easily kill them without caring. Yeah, and they're they're just kind of like creepy, crawly and gross. <laughs> I want to agree with and amplify all of that. Like, there's the fact that it's, you know, an insect, you know, and insects aren't warm-blooded. They don't have skin. They don't have faces that we emotionally connect with. They don't necessarily have personalities that we can identify. But I also made note of and wanted to kind of bring up how I think it's a very specific choice that the creature that he gets transmogrified into is a housefly. Because I think there's kind of a metaphor for domestic life in there. Like, I think, obviously, this movie is about a whole lot of things, and there are a whole lot of emotional dynamics going through it. And one of them, I think, is about domesticity, not just, like, what it means to find a partner and, you know, what it means to, like, get married or have a have a spouse or something like that, but also what it means to think about fatherhood and think about Chris, like you were saying, like aging and growing older in the context of domestic life. Because I think one of the tensions within Goldblum's character is, is he going to be a single-minded scientist in pursuit of his scientific quest? Or is he going to be fully present in this love relationship and see where that takes him? And if he would go into that love relationship, would it take him away from his science? And so it's like, ultimately, it's very clear which choice he makes. But I do think it's very intentional, like the choice of a housefly being the kind of thing that he gets crossed with. That's really interesting. I hadn't considered the housefly being kind of that representation, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the fact that she gets pregnant and he has to, you know, potentially commit to fatherhood. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. This movie made me want to consider having sex with a fly. (laughs) (laughs) What? Because they're they had good fly sex, you know, before things went south. They've really got that stamina. No, I don't think they did. <laughs> I don't think they had good fly sex. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, for for a while, it seemed pretty good. He seemed to be having good sex. She had enough. <laughs> <laughs> this is a weird conversation. <laughs> We can all agree on that, right? <laughs> I, I discuss this at least once a day. 
So watching these two movies, The Thing and The Fly, it's funny that I'm like, am I kind of into a body horror mood right now? Because then I watch Swallow, which is a movie that came out this year and it's a body horror movie. And it's something that must fascinate me, but it really does make me feel gross. (laughs) Like it's really a genre that affects me a lot. I think like I have a visceral reaction to like bodies being morphed into something else. And obviously that must be a general thing with a lot of people because they make these movies a lot. But I don't know if if you guys are like drawn to these kinds of movies or or these you it seems like you enjoy these two movies. But do you try to like stay away from that kind of thing? No, I love these types of movies, but I also think you're like, what you're hitting on is kind of our experience of lockdown life to whatever extent we're able to do it forces, I think, a lot of things to be internalized that we might otherwise be able to externalize in some way. And so I think there's a kind of escapism in body horror because, again, like in both of these movies, they're talking about these internal things and our internal emotions and the tumult of just what it feels like to be alive. But then they also find these storytelling ways and external physical character ways of manifesting that internal stuff in the outside world. I know I would have connected with these movies either way, but I really did feel like these were great and very timely movies to watch right now for that reason in a time where there's a lot more silent internal screaming than I might otherwise be doing. It (laughs) it helped me do some external screaming (laughs) of, oh my God, he's having fly sex. What's happening now? (laughs) I thought it was a really fantastic choice, both for this wintry time of year and also for just kind of the experience that we've all been going through. You were right. I'm diseased and uh, it might be contagious somehow. I wouldn't want to infect you. And it's been accelerating. It's unrelenting every day there. It changes. Every time I look in the mirror, someone different, someone hideous, repulsive. What happened? I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. Please. Yeah, I really don't like body horror. Like, I would never consider myself a fan of that, which might be why I had some reluctance going into these films, even having seen them both before, but having kind of blocked <laughs> them out <laughs> and, you know, having a ver- varying degrees of like even remembering if I liked them or not. But there is something that resonated more with me this time, which I think is a little bit at least about what's going on in the world right now. But also, you know, had to do with the fact that these movies are very specific and unique. Like, I still don't think I would enjoy body horror that feels a little bit more immediate to like what you actually experience There's a little bit more of that in this one with like the slimy dislodging of teeth and fingernails, which is really gross. Oh, so gross. (laughs) And and like made me squirm a little bit. But, you know, again, like at a certain point, you stop relating (laughs) with this experience and are like, okay, this is not something that's going to happen to me tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, it becomes like an otherworldly thing. But that being said, I also really did identify with the fact that he becomes this 
this decrepit, rapidly aging hermit, which is basically <laughs> what I also have become <laughs> in the last, uh, you know, nine months, <laughs> or at least that's how it feels. So, yeah, I mean, I should brag a bit because I got a big head start on both of y'all in terms of being a hermit. Uh, but Chris, I really feel you. <laughs> so, um, I think in conclusion, help us! <laughs> help us. Please, though. There was a sequel to The Fly in 1989, directed by Chris Wallace, who did the makeup effects for the first Fly movie. It starred Eric Stoltz and Daphne <laughs> Zuniga. It was. What? Not an Oscar winner and uh, not otherwise well-received. It was also adapted into an opera in 2008. Shut up. Huh. Yeah. What? Did that have good reviews? I mean, I think it was fine. It was Howard Shore who did it. It was in Paris. So I don't, wow. I don't think it ever came here, but I would definitely... Oh, well, that, he did the score for the movie, right? Yeah. So if it ever gets resurrected, I would happily go see an opera of this movie. Yeah, I feel like this is contained enough of a story to work pretty well as an opera. Yeah, for sure. Cronenberg also wrote another film in this franchise about a decade ago. Not exactly a sequel. He called it a meditation on flyness. Oh, no. Why not? Sure. <laughs> it stalled for budgetary reasons. The Fly recently came back into the public consciousness this election season. Oh. <laughs> with an SNL sketch in which um, clips from The Fly were used with Jim Carrey playing Biden's head to fly onto Mike Pence's head. And, you know, fly shenanigans. I watched it tonight. It was mildly amusing. <laughs> That's a bit generous to Latter-day SNL. I said mild. <laughs> Still. <laughs> okay, so I have a question for you guys. Mm -hmm. <sighs> you and your infernal questions. Actually, I have two questions. First of all, which is grosser? <laughs> the thing or the fly? Um, the, the fly, I think. Yeah, I would probably say the fly as well. You know, like Chris was saying, a lot of the horror of it is, you know, closer. It's not directly relatable to any experience we're going to have, <laughs> at least... But it's more physically, like, possible. You know, like, losing teeth and fingernails is always a thought that really creeps me out conceptually. Mm. Yeah, I think I would go with the fly, too. Okay, my last question is, The Thing and The Fly, you're showing them as a double feature. Which is the A movie and which is the B movie? Oh. Mm. Mm. Good question. Can they both play at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> the dual screen experience. That would be the cause of so many nightmares. <laughs> yeah. That's my answer. <laughs> my instinct is the order I watched it in, I think, would be the order that I would show it in, which would be the fly first. Because it's a more dramatic movie and more of a kind of relationship character drama style film to me. And then The Thing is closer to a blockbuster, even as intimate and small scale as it is. So it would really like end you on a bang. That's kind of how I would do it. I would go the opposite, actually. I was thinking The Thing is the A movie and then the B movie is The Fly just because it it has campier roots. Like it feels more of like a midnight movie kind of thing. I can understand that. Well, which, which leads me to just ask then, which one do you think is better? They're both good in their own ways. Mm. No, you have to choose one. I know I don't, I choose not to choose. 
I'm usually the person insisting on choosing not to choose, but in this case, it's really too difficult because part of what was so exciting to me about sitting down to record this with y'all was recognizing the, the ways in which they're so dramatically similar, even though they're wildly different stories and very wildly different approaches to the storytelling. And yeah, just the, the themes of them are resonant in their own right, but also like the varying approaches to telling the stories are done so well that I don't I don't know if I could pick or say that like one is demonstrably better than the other. Hmm. What about you, Chris? I think I'd go with The Thing. Mm. Even though I liked them both, I feel like The Thing just kind of gets at this sort of harder to grasp feeling of horror, which might be a lot just to do with like this moment in time. But to me, it really filled me with the sense of dread that I only really get from like the very best horror movies, like something like Texas Chainsaw or something that's kind of just like very like disturbing at the core. And so I think I would go with that one. But I also really like The Fly too. I can definitely agree with you there in terms of like which one I think is more horrifying. Because yeah, I do think The Thing is definitely more horrifying, more dread-inducing to me, leaves me with more uncertainty within myself after watching it, even after watching it, you know, as many times as I've seen it. I think the best qualities of The Fly are in the drama of it and in the sadness, the emotionality of it, and not necessarily as much in terms of giving me feelings of dread and terror and existential ennui, you know? It's rare that any movie can do that, and I think The Thing does it so, so well. Yeah, between the two, I I think we did a really good job of wrapping up 2020. (laughs) (laughs) And we've swatted all the flies in the house for this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode... We're going to be listening to the number one singles of the 1980s and the 1990s, which, let me assure you, is the mixtiest mixed bag you could ever ask for. (laughs) I can't wait. Get your cassette Walkman or CD Walkman ready. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed listening to this, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so more people will get to listen. You can follow us on all the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young so that we can make more episodes of this wondrous show. I've been Seth. I've been Becky, or have I? <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm uh, becoming a brundle fly. <laughs> nice Jeff Goldblum there. <laughs> I was strange for a fool.